When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and today we're going to talk about pirates. Now, a lot of you know me from Lost Pirate Kingdom on Netflix, an awesome TV show that I got to film a couple years back. Of course, since then, you've probably figured out that I like to talk about a lot of other things as well, but pirate history will always be close to my heart. I don't know about you guys, but lately I've been watching a lot of Our Flag Means Death. It's pretty tongue-in-cheek, but you might be surprised to hear that parts of it are more accurate than you'd think. To find out how accurate, this week I'm talking to Steed Bonnet's biographer, Jeremy Moss. Today we're talking about the real-life Steed, the revenge, and the mystery of his relationship with Blackbeard. Guys, they might have been roommates. This is a big discussion, and we cover a lot of ground. Or is it nautical miles? Well, either way, I hope you enjoy it. I am here with Jeremy Moss, the author of The Life and Trials of Gentleman Pirate Major Steed Bonnet. His new book, Colonial Virginia's War Against Piracy, The Governor and the Buccaneer, is out now. I am so excited to be talking to Jeremy. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Jessica. Really excited to be on the show. <laughs> We're so glad to have you. Oh, my goodness. Now, uh, of course, everybody's watching Our Flag Means Death, myself included. It's a great show. And uh, it's good, isn't it? Now, when uh, I was reading your biography of Steed Bonnet, the first thing I was struck by was how similar he is to the way that he's portrayed on the show. Uh, you had this wonderful description of him kind of walking around in a dressing gown, you know, uh, on, on the ship, and he had a library, and there were all these other similarities as well. So what can you tell us about his background? Yeah, first of all, you're absolutely right. There are so many similarities and themes that are happening um, with our flag means death that it's really, really interesting to be able to compare it to his actual life. But, you know, the real Steve Bonnet was, was a fascinating character. Um, you know, by 1716, he was kind of living the life, right? He was 28 years old. He was rich. Uh, he was married with three children. And his family uh, had a 400-acre lush Caribbean estate uh, that was producing mostly sugar, right? And, and at some point, um, in 1716, Steve decided he was just going to leave it all behind. And that's such a fascinating story, right? It's the ultimate midlife crisis with somebody that had absolutely no, no experience in seafaring and, and pirating to just decide to up and leave his, his family and his Caribbean estate and um, kind of, you know, make a life out on this pirate ship. Yeah, that's in incredible. Uh, you know, your descriptions of, of his situation were, were very striking, especially, you know, all the different kinds of food and things that they would have had. And the fact that he liked lemonade and all these things really stood out to me. I thought that was so cool. So why do you think he wanted to give it up? You know, that's that's the real question. And when you're a pirate historian, right, when you're somebody who researches pirates, whether it's Steve Bonnet or Blackbeard or anyone else, it's those why questions that are not often captured in the historical record. Now, of course, I've got some theories. One, this is a theory that we've carried over from a 1724 book called General History of the Pirates. 
is that he had discomforts in his marital state, right? That's the quote from the, the author is that he somehow, you know, was not happy with his married life. I don't know if his, he and his wife didn't get along. Maybe he had other urges or lusts, uh, but the reality is he, he may not have adjusted well to married life. Uh, he had been on his own as a child for years. So some of that may have also contributed to it, right? The be- emotional baggage that he carried from being orphaned at a young age, both of his parents died when he was six and seven years old. Um, or the other thing is, is he had a bit of a midlife crisis, right? He, it was obvious that he was well read. And a lot of what was coming out at the time were articles in the newspapers about pirates, people that were having these big adventures. Um, and there was also a series of what we call voyage narratives. People were starting to circumnavigate the globe and Steve would have read these books and, you know, he had been stuck on Barbados, which we think of this lush Caribbean island, a great place to retreat. But the reality is the hot, stifling island life of the 1700s is much different than what we would see today. Um, so I, I really believe that that he was inspired or kind of radicalized in a way uh, where he was reading these narratives and, and he got FOMO or he got fear of missing out. He wanted to go out in the world and, and see this adventure rather than the, you know, whatever. 100 square mile Caribbean island that he was stuck on. So, you know, it's probably a, a lot of those contributing factors. He may have also suffered from what another author said was kind of, you know, a dementia-like state, right? Maybe a, some kind of uh, medical condition that he couldn't get treated and he just, you know, couldn't put the pieces together and he just kind of snapped. Um, now he showed a, hand, a little bit of rational behavior, so I'm not sure that that's totally accurate, but um, that's certainly one of the theories that's floating out there. It's very interesting to speculate on. And of course, uh, you know, there's a dark side to living in paradise, too. Uh, Now, you you spent some time in the book describing, of course, you know, he was a a wealthy landowner, and that meant that he had a a number of enslaved people, too. Yeah, it's a great point. And I'm glad that you brought that up, because it is, it's worth discussing that, right? A lot of times when you talk about Steve Bonin in particular, you talk about pirates, you leave out that the condition of the enslaved people. And the reality is that triangle trade route was the exact same route that the pirates would kind of pursue. So that, you know, piracy of the 1700s is certainly intertwined with that. And Steve, you're right. He lived on a 400 acre plantation that was powered by enslaved people. And I spent quite a bit of time formulating a theory that maybe, just maybe, uh, he saw the atrocities of what were happening on his own estate. And he said, this is enough, I, I, I'm gonna leave. I wasn't able to find much, right? And the reality is perhaps Steve could have, you know, treated his, uh, the enslaved people on the plantation differently. He probably could have let them go. He probably could have moved them in a different direction. And we didn't see any of that from the historical record. In fact, the title major from Major Steed Bonnet doesn't come from any significant military experience. It comes from his position in the Barbadian militia, which is a really fancy way of saying there was a group of white men that would capture slaves on the island and return them to the owners. And that was where the title major comes from. So a lot of times when I talk about Steed, I, I, I drop the major title, right? I obviously include it in my book. It's part of who he is and how he's referred to. But it's such a dark piece of him yeah. um, that I, it's it's hard to talk through. Uh, but it's certainly a conversation that has to continue to be had. And, and frankly, it's one of the missing components right now of our flag means death, right? There hasn't been a reckoning of who the real Steed is. And we've heard from the authors or the, the writers of the show that, you know, this is, it's, fantasy based in based in reality Uh, but I think that that's I don't know that we're quite ready as a society to just let that piece go without addressing it so you know I certainly think that there's an artful way that the writers can address it but we just haven't gotten there yet hope to see some of that in season two 
Absolutely. And, and we're all looking forward to it, of course. And, uh, you know, one of the awesome things about it is, you know, his, his crew on the show, although it's much smaller than his, his real life crew, you know, it's, it's so, you know, beautifully diverse, you know, they have all these different people, all these different backgrounds. And that, that is, has, does have some basis in reality, doesn't it? About how, how diverse do you think pirate crews would have been at this time? Well, pirates were very, um, they would take advantage of all the situations that they had, right? And they didn't have the option like Steve did at the very beginning of his life to, to pick his pirate crew and pay them a wage, which he actually did. So pirate crews ended up being very egalitarian, right? They would impress or take uh, new people on their ship. And again, they were attacking a lot of these slave ships that had gold and, and other provisions on them. And they would either free the slaves, let them go and maroon them on islands perhaps, or they would take them in as crew members. Um, now, how they were treated on the crew, it's still kind of, you know, there's still a lot of speculation around it. But generally speaking, these pirate ships were, believe it or not, very egalitarian and democratic, right? They would oftentimes stand around and talk about what they should do next, who their captain should be. They had a very um, egalitarian way of, of dividing plunder, you know, based on, how, you know, whether what, what rank or merit you were on the ship. So uh, there are certain parts of, of piracy that, that lend itself to the belief that, you know, maybe that enslaved people were treated differently once they moved into piracy. And we know that people like Blackbeard had, you know, Africans, you know, just people that descended from Africa on his ship as part of his crew. And that is so interesting. And, you know, when you think about it like that, um, is especially versus the way that society was at that time, you know, it, you can see why somebody might want to run away. <laughs> you know, I mean, it yeah, does sound kind sure. of nice in theory, you know, of course, the reality of it was, uh, well, I mean, that was particularly brutal in a different way, but in theory, as, as sort of a, a sheltered, wealthy man, he might look at that and say, you know, that does actually sound kind of good. And, you know, of course, he was yeah. in a good position to follow that dream. How did he get his ship? Can you tell us a little bit about the revenge? Yeah, it's great. So obviously, Steve was, was wealthy. He inherited this estate. Um, and there was a, a sloop that came down from Rhode Island called the Revenge. It was already named the Revenge. And shows up in the in Barbados in the port, and Steed just went and bought it. Right, he took out a loan for almost the equivalent of four hundred thousand pounds, and he and he purchased a ship. Um, now that wasn't totally uncommon at the time, right? So Barbados being an island, a lot of the uh, kind of Barbadian playboys would buy ships that they would be able to just go from their country estates and, and go back down to Bridgetown, which was the major port. So they would have these boats, pleasure pleasure craft, kind of like you would today, right? With a yacht or something else. Like a massive yacht, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So it may not have been completely out of the ordinary uh, for Steve to do that, but yeah, he purchased it outright, which makes him unique in piracy, right? Most of these pirates are kind of trading their way up, right? They're using a smaller ship, they're taking a bigger one, they're being advantageous, and then they're you know, moving their crew to the big one and, and either burning the other one or letting it go. Um, and working their way up. And here you got Bonnet that just, you know, kind of buys the Cadillac of sloops and, and fits it out to, to hold a crew of over 100. That's absolutely amazing. And the uh, the idea of a library on a ship, I just love that. You know, I thought that was a kind of artistic license, but I was so pleased to see that he actually had one. Yeah, that's that's one of the true things where like, you know, life is stranger than fiction. And I love the way they describe in the show. It's like, wait, that is the most uh, you know, absurd thing, right? What happens when the waves hit and you see all these books flying off the shelves and um, it's just absolutely absurd. But yeah, that's one of the, the truths. We It was widely reported that he had, you know, a library on board. That is amazing. I just love that so much. And and of course, uh, Steve Bonnet actually did sail with Blackbeard uh, and they ultimately ended up really influencing each other's fates. Um, how would you describe their relationship? 
You know, that's a, another good one of those kind of treasures that we get is there's not a lot that surrounds it, right? There's no contemporaneous, um, you know, kind of capture of, of what happened when they actually met. For, for me, it feels like it's it's an alliance that's based mostly on economics, right? So at the time, Steve Bonnet had a relatively large ship with a relatively large crew, although he was coming off a significant naval defeat. So he was hurt, he was injured, he obviously didn't know exactly what he was doing. And then you've got Blackbeard who had a little six gun sloop. He had been traveling with some of the greatest pirates of all time, including Benjamin Hornigold and others. So he had this really significant naval experience. So you have like a trade of assets, right? You got the experience of Blackbeard with the necessity of a ship. And then you have Bonnet who has the financial backing that can bring that uh, to fruition. And what's interesting to me at least is uh, they do meet, Blackbeard takes control of the ship. Bonnet stays in his stateroom with his library and other things. and they spend a lot of time retracing Bonnet's steps, right? So Bonnet goes to Virginia and New York, and then he comes back down through North Carolina to Florida, and then he meets Blackbeard and Nassau in the Bahamas. And then as soon as they leave, they follow Bonnet's footsteps, not Blackbeard's, but Bonnet's footsteps back up the coast, um, which tells me that maybe Bonnet has some influence on Blackbeard and where they would go next, and, and he was providing intel. Um, so it's certainly possible that that he influenced how Blackbeard was going to spend the next couple of years of his life. I noticed there there are a few instances of Blackbeard, you know, looking out for Steed in almost an affectionate kind of way. The way that he treated him, it, it's not necessarily what you'd expect for economics. Now, I don't necessarily, you know, uh, want to imply that, of course, there was a romantic relationship there, but he seemed to to look at him almost as like a pet or like a friend, you know, um, there is there's that situation where he he convinced Steed to leave the revenge and then come and, and sail with him like as a passenger. I thought that was so interesting. Do you think that there there was some affection there? Do you think they cared about each other? Absolutely. It, it feels like there has to be. And you're right. There's a handful of those um, examples that come from the historical record that make you think this may be a little bit different. Now, honestly, before our flag means death, I thought of it more of like a big brother, little brother thing, mm-hmm. right? That Steed... Um, had, you know, impressed Blackbeard in some way and that it was very protective, right? There's a, there's a portion of history where Bonnet breaks off and he goes and he attacks a ship called the Protestant Caesar and he just gets you know, destroyed, right? And he just does not do very well in battle. And he comes back and meets up with Blackbeard and it's like going to his big brother. Hey, I just got, you know, in a big battle with the Protestant Caesar and they, you know, kicked our butts. What, what are you going to do about it? And big brother comes and, and captures the ship. So, that's how I had viewed it for years. Now it's certainly possible um, that somebody like Steed, who was uh, history has not been kind to his appearance, right? He was kind of a shorter, shapelier man um, that was, you know, dressed more, you know, effeminately. And then you've got Blackbeard, who's really tall and strong and sinewy. He's got this big dark beard that was really unfashionable, very rebellious at the time. And you know, I always I say this in the book too, but it's the first time that Steed saw the real Blackbeard, not just Edward, Edward Teach, but the real Blackbeard um, in action, he must have been in awe, right? Because Blackbeard was everything that he wasn't as a, as a man. Um, and uh, so there may have been some of that, you know, kind of romantic, like, oh, wow, this, this is what I want to be. And whether that was lustful or whether that was just something else is, is kind of up to interpretation, but you just can certainly kind of- see how it happened. 
Yeah, or even just kind of idealistic. Now, the other thing that occurred to me, of course, is, you know, we're, we're talking about how Steve Bonnet, you know, he grew up in these, uh, these very privileged circumstances. Now, to a lesser extent, Blackbeard grew up in, in a, a very nice household in Bristol as well. You know, a, a lot of pirates, of course, they're taken from all of these different situations. But Blackbeard himself grew up in a, in a wealthy merchant family. So, you know, because he was able to thrive as a pirate and really kind of be that, that kind of ideal kind of character as you're talking about you know do you think that maybe he saw steed who in a different life could have been maybe somebody they could have gone to school together you know and maybe saw uh, saw him and thought poor guy i'll look out for you <laughs> you know because yeah. they, they did kind of come from that that similar sort of socioeconomic background yeah absolutely so blackbeard's history is a little bit foggier than steed's right we've got a really direct kind of path to where steve was born and, and how he grew up and blackbeard he, there's a couple of options right there's so that the the bristol born piece is is widely reported and it's certainly possible that he was well educated himself he came from a good family and that they may have had that kind of socioeconomic tie together um you know the big difference though is is blackbeard got into piracy as most people did not as steve did with money so there was the war of spanish succession which was the early 1700s and the European superpowers, right? England, Spain, France, and others. It's like World War Zero. I mean, this is the, the current superpowers all together. Um, and it was the first time that it was on a truly global stage, right? The Caribbean was a big part of that. And the English would use privateers, right? Those are pirates with the support of the government, essentially a letter of mark that allows them to do what they do. Um, and Blackbeard was among those that sailed during the War of Spanish Succession. And when the war ended, there was nothing for all of these sailors stuck in the Caribbean to do, so they turned to pirates. So that's the, the background for Blackbeard. That's how he came into things. And that's how a lot of these pirates really started is out of necessity. Uh, but absolutely, you could see if Blackbeard came from a liberal education, a well-established household, that, that he, he wouldn't meet a lot of this the same men on the high seas. So that's certainly possible, possible that that's part of the relationship. So Blackbeard and Steed spent quite a lot of time together and they seem to have quite an affectionate relationship. So what caused their rift? Do you think? You're absolutely right. They spent a lot of time together, almost a year and a half. They took dozens and dozens of ships. And ultimately it was Blackbeard who decided that that relationship should be over. Um, and he ran his ship aground, we think on purpose um, and as Steve went to go get a pardon, um, to, which was offered at the time for pirates to try to get them out of piracy, um, Blackbeard essentially tricked him, took everything off the revenge, took all of his men, marooned them on an island, and just left him alone with really nothing, no provisions, very small crew, et cetera. So it was probably that Blackbeard's crew, right, his flotilla was getting too big. They weren't having a lot of success in getting gold and silver and treasure, Right. They were mostly taking provisions. They were spending a lot of time in, in areas where they couldn't turn those provisions into money. Right. It was very hard for pirates to monetize what they were taking because they actually had to find a place to go and sell these things. And they just weren't having a lot of that success. So I think it was really just kind of Blackbeard cutting off the fat right, of his crew and really trimming down what was essentially a commercial operation. Um, and I think that the relationship suffered because of that. And, you know, it could be that just he may have gotten tired of Steed, right? It was, he was carrying him, you know, on his back essentially. And it, you know, Steed was like acting like an anchor to use a, an article term. He's acting like an anchor that was just holding him back. Um, so I think that that's probably what, what did it is. He's just was trying to figure out a way to get Steed out um, and maximize his profit uh, because it, at least for a time, it appeared that Blackbeard was moving a little bit more towards like a retirement, which didn't really happen for pirates. 
um, but he definitely took some time off from piracy and, and spent that in North Carolina. Right. And then around this time as well, uh, you know, of course, Blackbeard was involved in, well, I mean, even for him, we want to say like almost erratic behavior. And I was thinking um, in particular about like the blockade of Charleston. Now, um, you spent some time describing that and how unusual that was for them to, to sail so close to the city. Now, there are some theories, of course, that they were in Charleston, you know, in addition to everything else, but for, for medicine, you know, we're thinking like possibly for something like syphilis. A lot of people think that because of what they found on the Queen Anne's Revenge, that Blackbeard himself, or at least some members of his crew, uh, might have been suffering from syphilis. Now, of course, at the time, uh, <laughs> that's pretty likely because so many people had it. Um, and of course, syphilis also causes, you know, that kind of erratic behavior. Now, I'm just thinking out loud here, but you know, when you mentioned that that Steve had something like, people think that he might have had something like early onset dementia. Now, given that he was only 28 years old, the thing that grabbed me immediately was the possibility that it could be something like syphilis, you know, um, particularly, you know, with, with his kind of background and the kind of experiences he's likely to have had. Do you think that that, that could have influenced anything going on here? Do you think that that's likely? Absolutely. And you're right that there was a nine-day blockade of the city of Charleston. It's called Charlestown at the time. And you've got to think that that's significant, right? There's four ships. This is one of the most significant um, ports of all of the American colonies, what will become the American colonies. And it was the only walled city in the English-speaking world. So, like, this is the this is the castle of all castles on the East Coast. And here we have four pirate ships that have just essentially brought all of commerce to a halt. And you're right, their only demand was not gold and silver and treasure and money and women. It was a small chest full of, of medicine, almost all of it, syringes and sulfur, et cetera, to treat syphilis. So it's clear that somebody was suffering enough that they would blockade an entire city. Um, and you're, you're right. One of the you know side effects, symptoms of having syphilis is this erratic behavior. And if you had a whole crew and, you know, frankly, pirates always had erratic behavior, so you can't it contributed all to, to one thing, but you had a whole crew that was suffering from it because they, you know, had, had shared lovers or they were, you know, they, they were, you know, having sex with each other all of that stuff could happen. Um, yeah, absolutely. The syphilis could have really driven some of this really irrational behavior that you see. It's a lot to think about. And, you know, your biography of Steed is so wonderful and so much happens that it is mind blowing to me that all of this happened in less than two years. You know, where do they find the time? <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're right. He, he had gone almost 28 years with a very simple, monotonous daily life. And it's almost like a, a firework that just blows up at the end of his life, right? He just has this crazy experience over a long period, or a short period of time, I should say. And, uh, and it's fascinating for somebody, you know, like me, who, who sees a little bit of Steve Bonnet in himself, right? I've got three kids, um, you know, i work and kind of a, you know, nine to five, you know, 10 to six kind of job. And, um, you know, it's just, it's fascinating to see how somebody could just kind of go off the rails and live all these really crazy experiences in a really short period of time. And then boom, just ends. Um, and I, you know, we talk about that a lot. I end up spending a lot of time talking about that with people is, do you think that Steve would have died a fulfilled man? And I think that the answer is yes. Right. If he was out there, if he really had this fear of missing out and he really wanted this big adventure, there are absolutely times where you can picture him being on the end of the ship. I think about Titanic, right? Steve just kind of hanging out of the front of the ship. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm the king of the world. And I, I think that he had absolutely had moments like that. So it's that really kind of final burst of his life that is just absolutely fascinating. 
Um, and it, it's what makes him, to me, one of the most interesting characters of the time. Absolutely, and he really is. Um, okay, so we have a great question from, uh, from one of our listeners, Jessica Miller. Thank you, Jessica. So uh, she would like to know, so Steve Bonnet, he was one of the only pirates accused of making people walk the plank. But, you know, since then, we've pretty much figured out that that's a myth. Why do you think that that myth is so persistent? Why do you think it's stuck to Steed as opposed to somebody else? It's a good question. I've never figured out why it's stuck to Steed. Um, you know, I, I think what we see a lot in piracy is, is that they get things that attach to them that cause terror, right? So you got to think about how, how these things were reported at the time. A lot of what was happening in piracy was embellished in the newspapers, right? Or newsprints. You get these, like the Boston Newsletter and other kind of contemporaneous uh, newsprints. But not everybody was literate, right? So they would share these stories orally. Um, there's a great movie from a different time period called News of the World with Tom Hanks. And, and that's kind of how I picture the pirate stories being told, right? People go from tavern to tavern and town square to town square. And they're almost like a town crier and they're reading these stories. And of course, they embellish them. They add things because who's, who's fact-checking them, right? They're not <laughs> circling back. So um, you get some of this kind of fake news that happens at the time and, and it just carries. And then as the game of telephone plays and word of mouth goes, I think that these things happen. The reality is nobody was going to make a spectacle of the death, right? They're not, if, if they're going to kill somebody, they're just going to throw them overboard um, or throw their bodies overboard or whatever else um, because pirates were looking for a very efficient way to, to to get people off their ships, to take what they needed to, and to move on to the next prize, right? So they they weren't really having these spectacles. Um, they were keeping prisoners, mostly for advantageous reasons. Uh, but you're absolutely right. There's no contemporaneous accounts of Steve Bonnet or anyone else really at the time of making people walk the plank. Where you see it later, decades later, um, is usually in a mutiny, right? Where they've taken over a captain and they, they, they have a hatred for this captain who may have treated them poorly. And that's the only time you see it. Um, but yeah, you're, you're, you're right. And Jessica's right. You know, we're not seeing it very often. And, and it is attributed to Steve, but there's nothing in the historical record that shows that he in fact made anybody walk the plank. And of course, these, these kind of myths that grow up around them, especially while they were still alive, I should say, these did kind of serve them to a point, especially all these stories that we get around Blackbeard. He's, he's crazy and he's brutal. And like, you know, all the stuff that they have like on the show, we would think of uh, as a fuckery, you know, they call it. That's right. you know? Art of fuckery, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it does kind of serve them because if they're going to, to take a ship and the people have already heard of them and they're aware, like, oh my goodness, I've heard what Blackbeard's done. I've heard that Steve Bonnet makes people walk the plank. Then of course they're going to surrender that much quicker, aren't they? Absolutely. Blackbeard was the, the master at that uh, because he was so tall and lanky and he had that big dark beard and he would like these kind of hemp um, wicks in his hair so that you create this kind of smoke smoky illusion around him and that's taken you know to an extreme in the show our flag means death right that first series with, with blackberries just enveloped in smoke uh, but there's some truth to that so in your opinion what makes a good pirate flag <laughs> i love it that's one of my favorite scenes of our flag means death right it's is, great. <laughs> is pirate, they're making these fire flags i think all of them are fantastic you know, there's, there's kind of two things that are going on. One, most pirate flags are probably very simple, right? So you, you rely more on color than you do anything else. A red flag um, is one that meant no quarter, right? That if, if we capture you, if you do not surrender, and we capture you in a battle, that there will be no lives spared. So that no quarter red flag is absolutely critical for a pirate. 
Um, we also think that that's, there's a theory that that's where the Jolly Roger came from, right? So the French version of, of, uh, of that is called a Jolie Rouge, right? The pretty red, pretty red flag. Um, so that bright red flag is, we think, where the Jolly Roger came from. But you're right, there's a lot of reports of having a death's head, right, which is a big skull, uh, imprinted on that, and that adds to that terror aspect. Now, what happened most of the time is these ships would try to fly a flag, the pirate ships would fly a flag of the country in which the waters they were in, right? So if they saw a British vessel, they might fly, you know, the British flag, get as close as they can, pull it down, add the Jolly Roger, and they'd be within striking distance so they can get an immediate surrender. So the flag certainly had an aspect of it, but they probably were not quite as ornate as you would see on the show, or as ornate as you see in pop culture now, right? There's a lot of flags that are attributed to Blackbeard and Bonnet that are probably not historically accurate to the time. Mm. Now, I remember reading about that. Um, I think you mentioned that our, our current idea of the flag that they, they think or somebody thought was Blackbeard's, it actually only goes back to the 19th century. That's right. Yeah, you, you don't see any references to that, that flag, which is, you know, a skull holding a, uh, a spear, piercing a heart with blood dripping out. You don't see references to that until only very, very recently, comparatively. Right. And, and it's a great design, but it is an ornate one. You know, if, if you're going to be, you know, making something like that on a ship, it's going to take you a lot longer than your, your kind of classic red or black or just a skull. You know, yeah, I mean, right. I can tell you that like, um, as somebody who sews, that would take me forever. There you you go. Know? <laughs> like, yeah, I, yeah. I, I have very little experience in that. So it's harder for me to say. And, and the reality is these guys were very self-sufficient, right? So they were accustomed to making their own clothes, fixing their own clothes, and they were uh, they had people on board that were really good at sewing because they had sails that were made of cloth, et cetera. So they had the capacity to do it, whether they had the desire to make these big ornate flags, it's really hard to say, but um, it, it's certainly possible. A lot of the men on these ships, they would have been quite crafty. You know, you'd have to, you have to be able to knit and sew and do all these different things just for the, the basic upkeep of the ship. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, these are self-sufficient places where people lived, right? So you, you had people that were uh, surgeons, doctors, and a lot of times they were kind of taking those from other ships. You had people that were cooks, you had people that had to clean. So all of these domestic duties that you get at home, you'd have to do on the ship as well. And it's probably exacerbated because you've got 125 men that don't shower and, you know, all of that stuff that's happening. So the domestic duties that are required to keep that ship free from disease um, and relatively clean and relatively safe are critical. And, you know, so sewing, cooking, uh, you know, medical work, all of that has to happen on that tiny ship. It must have been very extensive. My goodness. All right. Now, um, of course, we, we talked about the, the myth about walking the plank. And uh, of course, there are some other, you know, kind of questions that, that remain, right? There are some things that people speculate about. So one of the questions that I was thinking of, of course, from your book, you mentioned that there is what a, a four month period, I think you said, where, where Steed and Blackbeard kind of disappeared and no one really knows what they were doing. Yeah. So uh, we see that in the Bonnet story and the Blackbeard story. We see it all, all over the Caribbean is that a lot of times for reasons related to the weather, these pirates would escape the Eastern seaboard. They would leave the Eastern seaboard of the United States, what would be the United States, and they would make their way into to deep kind of Spanish territory at the time. And when you're studying pirates, you end up trying to study in three different languages, right? You have English version of what happened. We're reading a lot of letters from governors that are reporting back to Lords of Trade and Lords of Plantation. But when they get deep into Spanish territory, you get all this Spanish language um, that, that 
a lot of us don't have access to or don't have the ability to read. So this four month period where Blackbeard and Bonnet kind of end up in deep in Spanish territory kind of is that lost period. Um, there are references that make their way into the Boston newsletter where the Spanish are complaining of, of a black devil, right? A, a pirate that's out there that's you know attacking Spanish ships. And of course we think that's Blackbeard. But yeah, you're absolutely right. This, it's, it's, it's a difficult history to uncover because they weren't keeping their own records, the pirates weren't. So we rely on third party records that have contemporaneous run-ins with them and we lose them with the Spanish and the French quite often. Fascinating. After splitting with Blackbeard, uh, Steed was actually granted a pardon, but he ended up returning to piracy. Why do you think he did that? Yeah, I think Steed got stuck in a bad situation there. So you're absolutely right. He went to the governor of North Carolina and he took a pardon. He basically, there was a law that had been passed that allowed pirates like Steed and Blackbeard to go and accept a pardon for their previous piracy. So Steed went and did that. Um, he left Blackbeard and got his, got his pardon. But when he came back, this is the time where Blackbeard had kind of stripped his ship of everything that they had, all the food, all the water, all the provisions, all the weapons. So Steed's floating in North Carolina kind of just stuck. He's got a really small crew. He's got very little resources on board. And he was kind of forced into borrowing, I'm doing air quotes, uh, but borrowing material from other people. And he does this kind of forced barter. It's really interesting. He starts to head down to St. Thomas. He wants to get a letter of mark and kind of go back on the account legally. And he can't make his way down there. Of course, hurricane season's coming. So he's stopping ships and he's taking what he needs, ropes, sails, provisions, food, and he's giving them things that he doesn't need. Well, in exchange for that, here's some, you know, here's an extra anchor or here's some whatever else. So he's kind of doing this for Sparter. And he also changes his name at the time. He goes by Captain Edwards, which is really interesting. I don't know if that's an homage to, you know, Edward Teach, but Captain Edwards with an S as if he's, you know, a possession of Captain Edward, but Captain Edwards, and he changes the name of his ship. So he's really trying to hide the fact that it's Steve Bonnet, um, you know, the gentleman pirate, that this is the revenge. He's trying to make his way um, down south to St. Thomas. Ultimately, he doesn't do it. He has to pause in, in the Cape Fear River in North Carolina and provision a ship. He has to careen it, you know, fix the wood. And what we hear from one of the pirate, pirates that was sailed upon it is they intended to kind of ride out that hurricane season mm -hmm. um, until they could make their way back south into the Caribbean. Wow. All right. Now, of course, we talked a little bit about uh, Our Flag Means Death. And, you know, it is a great show. I'm, I'm sure that all of us are enjoying it. So the show has brought Steed's story to a much larger audience. Now, I'm sure everybody's wondering how much of the show is true. Did anything, uh, any strange details about it strike you as like, oh, I'm surprised they used that? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of thematic uh, license that's taken, but there are, there's also a lot of truth. And it's it's interesting. So Steed, obviously, uh, the timing lines up perfectly. It seems that Steed, being a family man, he's got these flashbacks to his family. Those are obviously um, similar to what we see in Steed's real life, although the number of children that he had at the table in these flashbacks is different. The fact that the portrayal of where he was, there's a scene where he's either with his father or with the caretaker of his plantation, that's similar to how the plantation would have looked. The fact that he was at a boarding school, right? he had, had a liberal education, all that's true. Even in the first episode, the early run-in with somebody else from Barbados um, is thematically correct. It's not exactly correct, but he did have a really early run-in with somebody who was discovered kind of right away, like, oh, you're Steve Bonnet from Barbados. And he ends up kind of adopting this practice where he's sinking ships that, that he meets from Barbados because he doesn't want the word to get back that he was kind of on the account and that he was a pirate. So at least in the early episodes, you see some, some of the, the background 
history is pretty close. Then, you know, a lot of time what you're seeing is there's a license that's taken, right? So <laughs> was the real Steve Bonnet quite as affable and likable as, as, you know, kind of the Steve Bonnet that we get with Reese Darby? Probably not. Um, that portrayal is very Ted Lasso, uh, very yeah. kind of the office, right? You get this like dynamic where it's, he's just this great boss and is uh, a leader that you would like, you know, kind of, you know, that, that you'd want to be with. You know, we don't know if that's exactly true. Um, that feels like license. And I also say this, there's a Charlie Chaplin quote, and I always get it really wrong, but I'll summarize it. It's that life, um, when looked at from afar, is a comedy, but when it's looked at very closely, it's a tragedy. And that's very much the Steve Bonnet life. And what Our Flag Means Death has done is it's taken this really kind of far back look at Bonnet's life as a comedy. Um, and that's great. And there's a place for that. And it certainly is interesting people to look at the real history. But when you start to dig in and you, you, you look at Bonnet's life, it's, it's really a tragedy, right? It, he's left his family behind. Um, he's enslaved a bunch of people. He's got a military title because of his militia. He robs, murders, pillages, um, all of that is really bad stuff that's easy to look at and kind of wash or sweep under the rug because he's such a crazy character that you just wouldn't believe, you know, could actually be a pirate. And people genuinely liked him, right? There are instances in the historical record where people that he met really, really liked him. In fact, when he was held in prison in, in Charleston, um, the women of Charleston in particular were, were, you know, kind of up at arms about let Steve go. And all of that's so fascinating to me because, he, he's he's an interesting character, but he's not necessarily a good person, right? He's not necessarily a person um, like the Darby character where it's like, yeah, I want to be around him and with him. I don't think that's actually accurate. So it just kind of creates this tension. There's a tension about who the real Steve is kind of compared to who he's portrayed. And what I hope happens, and I, I think I said this before, is I hope it forces people to say, oh, he is a real character. Let me dig into who he is. You can enjoy the fiction, right? I think that's perfectly appropriate. But just kind of dig in and see who the real character is and kind of see how all that interplays. Yeah, and, and of course, he he did die tragically young, too. When he was executed, he was only, what, about 30? Yeah, you know, he was born in 1688, and he dies in um, 1718, making him, you know, 30 years old. And th that's the reality of pirate life, right? Pirates didn't have a 401k or the, the need for a 401k, right? They're not burying treasure and say, I'm going to come back when I'm 60. Um, yeah, that's that's how pirates end. Their lives end it's on a gallows somewhere at the end of a road. Yeah, and, and that was Charleston. Of course, so many pirates were executed in Charleston at the time. Yeah, there was a, a really big push at the time, right? So I, I mentioned earlier that there was the opportunity to get a pardon and those pirates that didn't take the, the option of getting a pardon, you know, the, the effect of that is that the, the Royal Navy was going to chase them. And because of the blockade of Charleston, which we talked about earlier with Blackbeard and Bonnet, Charleston, uh, the, the governor of South Carolina, Johnson, was just, he was done, right? There were a handful of colonial governors that were just absolutely done with, with piracy. And he had Colonel William Rett, who captured Bonnet, um, who was a very good naval tactician and was able to capture Bonnet, and Captain Worley. And there was a series of hangings that happened. Hundreds of pirates were, were executed between 1718 and the end of the Golden Age, which is 1730, uh, where they were just capturing these crews and sending them off to be hung. God, it's terrible. So interesting, though. Now, of course, your new book is Colonial Virginia's War Against Piracy, The Governor and the Buccaneer. Uh, now, I found this such an exciting read. What can you tell us about it? Yeah, it's, it's one of those, you know, as I was researching piracy, 
uh, particularly in Virginia, we came across a lot of really interesting characters. For me, that's what it's about, right? I, I write on the side, it's a hobby of mine. I love it, I hope my books do well. Um, but I, I love focusing on the stories that may not have been told because there's so many really, really great ones. So this is the story of the governor and the buccaneer, right? Governor Francis Nicholson, who's this kind of brash, unempathetic colonial administrator uh, who's fascinating in and of himself, right? He said he had served in the army. Uh, he had been governor of South Carolina, Maryland, Nova Scotia. So he's kind of a seasoned colonial administrator. He comes to Virginia and Virginia is just racked with piracy. In 1700, Virginia is one of these colonies that require um, trade, right? They're selling a lot of tobacco that they require that they, they ship back to Europe um, in order to monetize it. So when piracy hits, which it does in 1699, when it, when it hits Virginia hard and, and it puts Virginia to standstill, Nicholson says, I've had enough, right? I've got to figure out a way to secure our waters. Um, so he has a ship come in, the, the HMS Shoreham, and there's a buccaneer that comes from Tortuga that has heard that Virginia is open for business for pirates, right? They don't know that this new ship is here. So they've kind of got this suave buccaneer, uh, you know, French, from, you know, French heritage that comes up and thinks he's going to have the reign of Chesapeake Bay. And what the story is really about is that they're meeting, right? There's a big naval battle in what's called the Linhead Bay right there in what is now kind of the tourist section of Virginia Beach. So it's a great beach read. Um, and there's a big naval battle where there's, you know, 1,671 cannonballs exchanged and 30 tons of gunpowder used. And you've got the governor of Virginia who's on the deck of the ship just, you know, yelling uh, for people to continue on and fight. And he's offering gold for people that kill pirates. So it's just a really cool, you know, story that, in today's society, it's like so hard to believe that that's what would happen, right? Like it was such a different time back then, but it's all right in our backyard, right? I grew up in, in Virginia, near Virginia Beach, and, you know, could kind of picture all of this happening. So it's really, really fun to bring that to the book, uh, to, to the new book. And the History Press out of Charleston has picked it up. And um, I just think that the final product looks great. And I hope people enjoy it. Oh, yeah. Well, it is such an interesting read. Now, um, I'm glad you mentioned that with the, the battle and everything. You know, I've been through uh, Chesapeake Bay a couple of times, and I never thought twice about it. But now I'm just wondering how many artifacts must be at the bottom. You know, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you can't even. Well, we've got at least 1,671 cannonballs, right, that are in the Lindhaven <laughs> Bay. So that's um, a few. Yeah, absolutely. Between the Chesapeake Bay in and around what's called Hampton Roads, right, which is Hampton, Norfolk, Virginia Beach, Chesapeake, um, Newport News, Jamestown, and the Outer Banks of North Carolina, right, the graveyard of the Atlantic. You've hundreds and hundreds of old ships and shipwrecks that are, you know, kind of sunk at the bottom. Now, in Hampton Roads, they've done a lot of dredging because the Port of Virginia is such a big aspect of their economy, uh, and the Navy bases are there, so they've kept it relatively clean. I doubt there's a lot of artifacts left from the dredging, but certainly on the graveyard of the Atlantic, you know, off the coast of North Carolina, just tons and tons of really cool artifacts that are left, including Blackbeard Ship, which they found in 1996, the Queen Anne's Revenge. So... They've got a, a process currently where they're examining, you know, what's happening there and they're bringing things up really slowly, which is really cool. That's so interesting. You know, it, it does make you want to kind of go to the beach, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's great. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming today. Um, so where can we find you? Yeah. So, I, you know, I love talking to people on Twitter. I love interacting with fans of our flag means death. So find me on Twitter at Steeds Revenge. Uh, or you can follow my Facebook page, author Jeremy Moss, or you can always check out my website and find links to my books and also the rest of my social, uh, www.authorjeremymoss.com. Once again, I'd like to thank Jeremy Moss for joining us today. 
His books, The Life and Trials of the Gentleman Pirate, Major Steed Bonnet, and Colonial Virginia's War Against Piracy, The Governor and the Buccaneer are out now. You can find him at authorjeremymoss.com and on Twitter at Steed's Revenge. I'd also like to thank our superstar patrons on Patreon, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Ayana DaCosta, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Shannon Roth, Lily Sire Lewis, Icy Sedgwick, Kelly Simon, and Sylvia Van Eyck. If you would like to support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. As always, if you enjoy the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. Or you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Dirty Sexy History, where we will also post photos from today's show. If you'd like to contact us or read more posts from our archives, check out our website at DirtySexyHistory.com. See you next time. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast by Jessica Kale and Dr. John Jenkins. You can find us at DirtySexyHistory.com.